Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I'm your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. Happy to be back with you guys for another episode. The music that you hear is from my friend Ryan Allwart, and he's actually celebrating one year of his Christmas album being released. Just released a year ago yesterday, if you're listening to this on Monday. And if you're already getting into the Christmas spirit, like I know some of you guys are, some of you have already got your trees up, your decorations up, go ahead and throw Ryan's Indiana Christmas album on while you're doing that because it's such a great soundtrack for the winter season. This week on the show, I'm excited to introduce to you guys a young speaker, writer, thinker, and former professional golf player, Thane Marcus Ringler, which is an incredible name, but he just released an ebook called Catalyst for Hope, Unlocking Energy, Optimism, and Your Full Potential. It's free. It's on his website. You can find that in the show notes, but also he's about to release two online courses called Take Ownership, Growing Self-Awareness, and Never Settle, Developing Discipline. This is a really cool conversation just about disciplines in our life and kind of just recentering our thinking. Uh, if you're a thinking person, I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from Thane in this episode. He's incredibly passionate about these subjects and looking at them through the lens of scripture. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Thane Marcus Ringler. So Thane Marcus Ringler is my guest this week, former professional golfer and now an author, podcaster, speaker. How's it going, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Cole. It's fun to be here with you virtually and uh, <laughs> excited to share this conversation together. So I don't want to skip past that first part, former professional golfer. I've gotten really big into golf this year. I've kind of played here or there uh, throughout my whole life. I've always been more of a tennis player. That was my sport plan. I was a high school, high school tennis coach. And I just got into golf this summer pretty big, and I live about two minutes from a course and have just been really getting into it. So uh, well, just, let's, just so I can live vicariously through you, because uh, one of my favorite parts about playing golf is the ability to play on such beautiful courses and go mm. wherever you, you know, whenever you travel, getting to play on courses. I told my wife, you know, one thing that's awesome about golf is it's the same sport, but it's still different wherever you go because each course is different. So what was it like playing professional golf? What, what, what tours did you play on? And uh, just what was that whole life like for you? Yeah, well, it is such a beautiful sport. So I'm glad that you're getting into it now. And, and tennis is great, too. They're both really unique in that uh, they are such mental sports. Um, so they definitely share that. Uh, golf is, um, yeah, it's a sweet uh, journey of discovering yourself through every shot, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, for me, I got to play on different developmental tours around the U.S., uh, on the Adams Pro Tour, Golden State Tour, uh, and then a handful of others. And then I also got stats on the one Asia tour in 2015. So I was overseas playing there. Um, and you know, I didn't get that. The, the, the story of my career really is that I didn't have the success I aimed for. Mm -hmm. I had about three and a half to four years where I was playing. And, uh, the second half of it, I had a muscle strain in my back that repeated about five times over that year and a half, which made yeah. it really frustrating the on off of trying to compete, but then also trying to heal my body and, um, and so really, it was a disappointing career, to be honest, I, 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 I ended it as a quote, unquote, failure, uh, as what I, I didn't accomplish myself of getting the PJ tour and, and now having some friends I grew up competing against that got their cards last year and are out there and I get to see on Sunday, you know, see their names or yeah. if they get shown. It's just a really cool feeling. Part of me is jealous in a good way of like, man, that would have been so sweet to be able to do that. 
And I still believe I have the talent ability to do that. That the biggest thing for me was the mental game held me back at the start. Um, and I had to overcome a lot of that, but I wasn't able to capitalize on the opportunities I was given. Uh, and it's a very, just to give people an idea, it's a very uh, taxing and grueling lifestyle. It's not glamorous and sexy like most people think. Like any professional sport or athlete, it's never as uh, uh, showy or glamorous as it appears. There's yeah. always way more work, travel, time, effort, commitment, and sacrifice ultimately that goes into it. So yeah, uh, just to try and paint a more accurate picture, although it is an amazing opportunity and, and I feel really blessed to have it. It is a really hard uh, journey for sure. Yeah. And you kind of hit on something there that I think, you know, I, I, I still play tennis and even when I coach or really do anything, I, like I'm, I'm really big about like noticing metaphors and, and things that just like when things happen, like understanding kind of the larger picture. And you talked about how like your story was, your golf career was kind of marked by failure, but that, but you didn't stop there. You, you figured out what else you were good at and what else you could do. And now that's just part of your story. So, you know, whatever you tell this story, you say like, you know, my golf career was technically a failure, but now you're an author and you've got other things going on. Whenever you kind of put your golf career in perspective of what you're doing now, uh, how much did that shape you? to who you are, you know, as a person, but also as a, as a creator now, uh, it, in every way. Right. <laughs> it's, um, and this is what I loved, uh, sharing is this idea of failure. I think we don't do things. We don't pursue paths because we have this fear of failure, this aversion to failure, this, and even this fear of dead ends, you know, coming out of college, I think most people face this in the sense that, uh, a lot of times coming out of college, we're expected to have our career path and what we want to do yeah. with our lives figured out. We're like, okay, that's a big decision because that means I have to like determine the rest of my 50, 60 years on this planet. And um, that's a lot of pressure. I don't want to pick the wrong path because what if it ends up in a dead end, right? Yeah. What if that's actually not what I was supposed to do? Yeah. And this fear of dead ends, it, it misses a very important uh, part of it that the process and the experience of the journey well, if it ends up in a dead end, that's not actually meaning that you have to go to the beginning and start over again. You get to take a few steps back, pivot, pick a new path and move forward with all the experience you've gained up to that point. Yeah. So for me, you know, while I wasn't in a specific career or industry, um, typical, I guess, industry while I was playing, pursuing golf for over 20 years of my life, yeah. I was learning so much about myself and about human performance and about uh, many things that relate to life in general, that it, it equipped me for all that I was doing afterwards. And each step of the way allowed led me to, to where I am today. And I never would have planned to be a speaker, writer, or coach, or any of that, even podcast, you know, like none of that was in my peripherals at all. Uh, and, and I think that's a lot of times how God works anyways, is he kind of uh, uses all of it to, to bring about what we could never have seen beforehand. Yeah. And, you know, you're, me and you both, like I started out as a sports journalist. I went to school for journalism. And even looking back at high school, my, one of my high school jobs was working at the newspaper. Like that's all I really ever wanted to do. And even going through college, everybody was telling me like, you know, the, the newspaper industry is dying. There's not going to be any jobs. You're not going to make any money. And I was aware of it, but I also just kind of had blinders on. And I was like, this is what I'm good at. I love to write. I want to do this. I'll make it mm -hmm. work. And 
I just kind of had a change of heart really once I started coaching high school tennis and I kind of thought about, you know, what do I want to do with my life? I want to be married. I want to be able to sustain a family. It wasn't so much the money. It was more so the lifestyle of it that I was like, I don't know that I could sustain either having to work nights or weekends all the time. And so I shifted careers and I went into teaching, never thought that I would become a teacher. And I just finished the book called Dream Big by Bob Goff. I don't know if you've gotten mm-hmm. a chance to read this book yet, but he, uh, for a long time, was an attorney. He's a, you know, he was a lawyer. Uh, he's done a number of different things, and now he's an author. He's a speaker. He uh, runs some nonprofits. And one of the things he said in the book, and he basically said, you know, even in the Bible, God calls us to be a new creation. And I think a lot of us, and I know that I've felt like this before, where I almost felt guilty leaving this career that I thought I had married myself to and changing careers. I was like, did I abandon that career before it was able to blossom. What, what could have been out of that if I would have been more patient? But I don't know that that's the right way to look at it because we go through seasons of life where we change what it is that we're interested in, where we feel like we're being called. And he said just you know the way that we're being called into being a new creation, sometimes that includes our profession, what we're doing in our lives, our lifestyle, that kind of thing. And so I think that's given me a lot of comfort. And not that I ever doubted going into teaching, but it gave me a lot of comfort in knowing like it is okay to change and to have, you know, a change of heart. Cause I think, you know, us as millennials, we get a lot of flack for, you know, like our grandparents, they had one job for 40 years and they stayed through it. And our generation just isn't like that. We don't really live in one spot. We're kind of more nomadic. And I just think that that's, that's how things have changed. And I don't really know mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with that. And so, you know, as you kind of, you kind of hit on this, but you know, what would you, what would you say to people that maybe are, feeling like they're, they're stuck in a rut in a current profession or a phase of life. They're scared to move on to something else or take a risk or are scared to leave what maybe felt comfortable to go do something else. Where, you know, did you experience those, those emotions and what did you do to kind of fight against them? 100%. I, I love all that you said. And um, to, before I answer your question, I just wanted to say that I think the, the, what you're speaking to is this tension between commitment and change, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we all feel like uh, we, ha- we, it's really good to be committed to something that means like enduring to the end and lasting and persevering through it. And that's very honorable and noble. And I agree we should, but this idea that that creates us a version then to change. And that if we change and we really weren't committed, I think is just inhonest, you know, it's, it's dishonest, I guess, intellectually dishonest in the sense that we are always changing. You know, if we aren't changing, yeah. we're decaying. I mean, there's only growth and decay, there's no stagnancy in life, ultimately. Um, and so I think that helps us understand that you kind of have to marry the two uh, in this dance. And it's not a stagnant place, um, yeah. but it's it's a place of tension. So it's kind of embracing that tension of it. And and for people that are in those places, like you said, that that I was, yes, we, we experience fears. We experience emotions that um, it feels like a loss of ourselves. And I think that's what's important about this is that we so often attach our identity to what we do instead of who we are. And that's true for all of us. And especially for me, when I was playing golf my whole life, and then you become known as, oh, he's a golfer. Oh, he's a professional golfer or this and that. Or now, you know, for you, it's like, he's a teacher, right? And we can start associating our identity with what we're doing versus who we are as human beings. And then what results from those things that we're doing, those careers or pursuits start becoming, okay, if I failed this and I am a failure, yep. you know, and that's yep. where it's most scary. Uh, and so just detaching our identity from our career, from these other titles or labels that we or others put on us is the most freeing thing. And it allows us the freedom to fail, the freedom to change, the freedom yeah. to 
to pursue what really feel called to do. And that's going to change. I, Muhammad Ali has one of my favorite quotes. I actually uh, put it in my first book just because, you know, I was 25, 26 when I was writing it. And I really wanted people to understand that, look, like I recognize that. I'm not trying to say like I have it all figured out. I'm saying that a perspective from this place in the journey could be helpful. And Muhammad Ali said, uh, the man who views his life the same at 50 as he did at the age of 20 wasted 30 years of his life. Yeah. And so if we are not changing our views, this doesn't mean like we have to just throw everything to the wind, but if we're not changing, we're really not growing. And I know that my perspective will change. It has since I came out of golf. It has since I came out of college. It has since last year, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. And you mentioned identity and that's something that, you know, I know you and I just met recently that's something that I have been writing and talking about probably more than any topic this entire year. And I just did a podcast episode talking about um, like most of my podcasts are interviews like this, but I did one that was just kind of me talking for a while about identity and contentment and comparison, because, you know, when I didn't teach this past year, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in my creative endeavors. I wasn't coaching. I wasn't teaching. I wasn't in the community. My wife and I actually moved out of town to, to her hometown and we don't have the community. I don't have the community here that I had back in my hometown in Indiana. And so it, I went from being a pretty known person with a pretty big role, you know, not that I was popular in my job, but I was pretty well liked and to go into being pretty anonymous where I'm at now. Yeah. And my identity didn't transfer over with me because the things that I was doing didn't come with me. And so what I was doing, what you know, I found myself searching for identity in this podcast, in my writing, and other things that I was doing. And this whole year has been kind of a journey of realigning my identity with who Christ says I am and who I am in him. And so, you know, for you, you know, but what were what were some of those identity type of things that you struggled with as you shifted from, you know, like you said, you played golf almost your entire life, whenever that wasn't what people knew you as you know, did you struggle with identity and how did you kind of overcome that to where you were, that wasn't something that was maybe, maybe it still does, but you know, maybe it's something you're still battling, but you know, did you struggle with that? And, and what's kind of that process been like for you? Yeah, I think uh, we're all human and we all struggle with that. So you're not yeah. alone. I'm not alone. Whoever's listening is not alone. We do. Um, and even to this day, you know, I think now, just even as you're talking, I was thinking about um, even though stuff I'm doing now, the work I'm doing now, how much is my identity wrapped up in it? And I'm like, man, I, I think a lot of it still is, you know, yeah. and, and tends to be very often. Um, and I don't want to operate in a place where my identity is found in those things. And so I think it is almost a daily practice that we need to remind ourselves of who we are, meaning we're one of a collective, we're one of the fellow humanity, um, and that none of us, the world doesn't revolve around any of us. Um, and we all have an individual role to play. So those reminders are really helpful, I think, on the daily level. Um, and, and yeah, coming out of golf, I think uh, what helps us and what helped me in identity was, well, first off, like you said, like having Jesus and knowing Jesus uh, in our life is, um, I think, the ultimate freedom from identity, right? We can have our identity in him versus ourselves, and that just changes everything. Um, and his life demonstrates um, what a like a upside down approach to that whole worldly view of identity is. Right. Um, Jesus's form of leadership is laying yourself down, not taking yourself up. So I yeah, think just that is the ultimate freedom of flipping it on its head. Um, and so but beside that, even uh, coming out of golf, I think what really helped me was 
pouring into uh, the next. And so one was taking the space to figure out, okay, is it golf or is it something else? And, and I took a couple months to like you, you know, taking a year off and work on, I think it's really healthy to have some measure of pause for me it was a couple months of considering, evaluating, praying, meditating, talking to friends, family, mentors, my team, um, and deciding, is it golf or is it something else? And, and the question I sat with was who have I been created, equipped and called to be? And just sitting with that, you know, and letting it marinate and really trying to listen to God and what he was saying. And, um, and I really felt I could be more effective outside the world of golf than within it. And that was the core conviction. And then I kind of phased it to where it would be easier on myself because I knew it was going to be hard. And I knew that what I cared about probably most in it was what other people thought of me in that. Right. right that's yeah. the thing that's the most scary for all of us is like, what are they, other people, they going to think, you know, um, and so I phased it where I made the decision in my heart with God. Then I talked to my family probably the week after that. Then I waited a little bit and I talked to my team and investors, told them. Then I waited a little bit, you know, like weeks and then started telling closer friends and then less close friends and then announcing it probably several months after the decision already had been made. That yeah. way it was I was emotionally and mentally prepared for whatever type of feedback there would be. And I could receive it in a healthy way, not an unhealthy way. So I think that was really a helpful practice for me as well. Yeah. And what's it been like for you to kind of shift your career into more of a creator mode? Were you always into writing or uh, how did you kind of get into that? Because I know some people, they find their itch to write later in life. Some people that's kind of been there since they were in grade school and high school and all that. But um, were you always into writing and, and creating content or did this kind of come about after your, just kind of after your golf career ended? You know, I, I actually used to despise writing in English. Um, <laughs> That's usually what the answer kid. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was into math and numbers and logic and reason. And I told myself as a kid that my sister had all the creative genes and I didn't have any. I was a numbers guy. Yeah. So that self-limiting belief led to me not exercising any creativity, really. Even though I was on the golf course, I just didn't recognize that was creativity. Right. Um, but when I started professional golf, I created a website to keep friends, family, and other fans up to date on what I was doing. Um, and, and I ended up starting writing, starting to write blog posts on there to, to kind of give people a summary of the tournament and yeah. how I, you know, played and performed. And then as I kept doing, it, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And I, I started then writing some blog posts like, oh, here's my workout routines or here's what I'm doing, like to biohack my life right now or to improve my performance. You're and, creating a niche of content. You didn't even realize it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what in the world, you know? Um, so uh, then I really started to fall in love with it. And and the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it and the process of doing it. And then at the end of golf was when I had this injury. I remember I was flying actually to Bangkok, Thailand to uh, play in the Asian Tour qualifier. Uh, and it's I'd a long way to fly to play a golf tournament. <laughs> yeah. It was going to be a two-week trip, two round, or two different um, sections of the tournament. And I remember I had re-aggravated my injury the week before I left. And so I knew I had to try because I wouldn't get any of my money back for anything at that point. Yeah. But I was pretty confident in my heart I wouldn't be able to play. So I was thinking on the plane, like, what could I do for my investors and sponsors if I, I can't repay them financially for what they've given me? What could I do as a way to say thanks? And, and this idea of like, what if I wrote a book about what this experience and journey has taught me? Uh, and give that to them and give that to them. And, and that was the first idea for this book. Um, and then fast forward six months later, I was injured again in, in Kansas. And I was like, I'm not just going to sit around and rehab and practice putting. I want to actually maybe start writing this book. I feel like God's given me the space to do it. So 
I took two months and just tried to puke out as much as I could of it. Um, yeah. It was a horrible first draft, as they all are. And um, <laughs> and then 18 months later, you know, I ended up getting it out into the world. And that was a really, um, yeah, surreal kind of thing to do. I had never even thought about it before that moment. Um, and to see that come to life and now to have the second one um, online offering on my website is just, it's just been sweet. I, I've really been grateful for the medium of writing. And I think uh, there's a great quote, I can't remember who said it, but basically said that um, writing is a way to figure it out. You know, we figure things out by writing ultimately. So it, I love it for a way to clarify my thinking and to refine my ideas and concepts of different uh, things that I'm thinking through and then trying to share that with others. It's just such a joy to be able to do. Yeah. And, and you said you've got uh, obviously another book coming out, but you said you're actually maybe more excited, uh, not maybe not more excited, but I guess kind of a, a big focus as well has been your online courses. So you have one called Take Ownership, Growing Self-Awareness, and another one called Never Settle, Developing Discipline. Uh, both are eight-week courses. You said they'll be live in November. Walk me through uh, the idea behind these and what you hope people will get out of those courses. Totally. Yeah, I am really excited about them and probably because I've been working for a long time on them <laughs> and I really believe in them. Those are the two reasons why. Um, you know, these courses come from the last three years. I've been coming out of golf. I was, I was trying to figure out what is, the, what is the giftings that God's given me and how can I benefit others? And that turned into this development coaching practice. My brother-in-law was an executive coach at the time, so I was familiar with coaching and the space of it. Um, and I, I tried to test this out with a handful of friends for four to five months, say, hey, I think this could be beneficial for you. I don't know. I want to test it out and try it out. And so after the concept was proven, I turned it into a, a practice. And, and from the last couple of years of, of working with individuals on personal and professional development, I've really seen uh, my emphasis and focus and what I feel like golf instilled in me at a deep level. I see those two things kind of yeah, revolving around taking ownership and never settling. And that's kind of the rally cry. And, and taking ownership is all about taking ownership, taking responsibility for our thoughts, behaviors, and actions saying, look, I need to be able to see what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and take ownership of the results and stop blaming, stop making excuses. If I'm ever going to progress, that's how we do it. Uh, and the second is never settling for less than we're capable of, which means we can't default uh, to the easiest path. In honesty, we all as humans default to the path of least resistance. Yeah. So if the river, if the stream's going downstream, we are too, if we don't make a choice. If we make a choice to go upstream, that always requires effort, and intention, a reason why is like, okay, I'm going to go upstream because of this. Now I need to put in the effort to do it. And effort plus intention is always discipline. It takes discipline to do that. Um, so these two ideas have been really core to working with people and, and self-awareness is what is at the root of taking ownership because we aren't aware of what to take ownership for or what we're not taking ownership for. We can't do it anyway. So that's kind of what the dis distillation of the last several years has been. And, and this is just a way to provide a process for people uh, that's more accessible. Hi, my name is Tim Ferrara, founder of Discerning Dad. I would like to invite you to listen to my podcast, Everyday Discernment. My podcast helps Christians grow in discernment and make decisions that honor God. My goal is to help equip you with practical steps in order to make better decisions today by using the Bible as a roadmap to your life. I have guests on my podcast who share stories of a time they had godly discernment and a time they did not so we can learn and grow together. 
I've had some amazing guests on so far, like Sean Bowles, Matt Brown, Rashawn Copeland, and Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus on The Chosen. I have many more awesome guests planned, and I hope you listen to the Everyday Discernment podcast and that it helps you deepen your walk with Jesus Christ. You can find me, Discerning Dad, on all social media platforms by searching for Discerning Dad, and you can find the Everyday Discernment podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks and God bless. So these are two two different courses. Are they are they meant to be paired together? Like, if, can people do one or the other, or do you recommend that they do both of them together because the ideas maybe blend together? They definitely blend together, but I recommend people to choose whatever path they want. You know, yeah. it's it's not meant to be together or separate. I mean, some you, they're going to be discounted if you package them together. Um, but at the end of the day, I want you to do what you think you need or what you would find most yeah. helpful. I don't care what that is. Yeah. Is this a, is it mostly like like words or is there videos mixed in there? Kind of how, how are these structured? Just kind of, I'm curious because I've, I've never, I've never done one of these kind of online courses like this. I'm just curious how like, you know, people are structuring them or, you know, if you're a, if you're a viewer or a consumer of it, uh, what can they expect to get from it? Totally. So it's, they're both eight weeks um, and, and you can go at your own pace. So if you want to knock it out in two weeks, you could, <laughs> but you wouldn't get probably as much benefit from it. Yeah. Um, what they're going to entail is an introduction video where I kind of give you a, a glimpse of that week's lesson. Then there'll be the lesson plan, which is um, me narrating a pitch deck, basically, uh, that you'll learn through and get the content for, the ideas for, and understanding for it. Then there'll be a short quiz to, to remember and regurgitate so that we can better uh, retain the information. Then there'll be journaling exercises, um, and this is a way to process it further on your own, uh, and then we'll interact with that. And finally, there's additional exercises that um, are creative ways to instill these concepts into real time in our daily lives. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I want to give people enough, but not too much, right? That's the balance. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, everyone's so busy. We have full lives and so much vying for our attention. We don't need this massive dump of information. But what I want to provide is a simple framework that people can work through that is like the minimum effective dose, right? The MVP that will that will get it entrenched in our very being so that they can embrace this as a lifestyle, not just as a quick course to take. Yeah. And you mentioned th this idea of, you know, for some reason we want to take the, the the path of least resistance, sometimes the easiest route. What have you found in, in your research and writing that suggests why that's why we're prone to doing that. Cause I feel like, you know, or maybe we're just settling for less than what we could. Is it, is it a matter of fear or just uh, not being confident in our abilities or, or just, you know, from your own, own perspective, what are, what are the reasons for why we are prone to settling for less than what we're capable of? I think that's a great question. And you hit on a couple already fear, right? Fear yeah. of not living up to what we say we're going to do of that failure, right? Which we already talked about. Um, it's uh it's also our cultural assimilation, meaning when most people aren't, when most people are settling, it's it's easier to do that. Like everyone else is doing it, so I'm just going to fall in line. Like we follow the crowd, we follow the culture that we're surrounded by. Yeah. Um, I think other reasons are it's easier. Uh, we get comfortable. We love safety, security, and comfort. And by remaining where we are, we get to prize those aspects instead of going out and taking a leap of faith, a step of faith, or getting outside of our comfort zone. Yeah. You know, in America is a culture built on comfort and security. Uh, and these are things that limit one faith, but they also limit 
the journey that God calls us to and the journey that everyone really should go on in the sense that even the hero's journey, like if you look at the narrative of all the most powerful stories is someone going out and that journey isn't, uh, it never stops. And this goes back to what we kind of had earlier about commitment versus change. We can still be committed people through change and through a journey, uh, through an evolution, right? We, we are growing into, uh, and, and I love the quote, uh, forward progress is not a finished process. Yeah. And there's so much hope in that, right? There's, there's so much hope that, hey, it's not, we're not finished yet. It's not yeah. over yet. We can keep pressing on. And, and I think we get in a lot of trouble um, career-wise, uh, but also faith-wise, when we, when we find the group that we're most alike, uh, you know, this happens within Christianity a lot too. And then oh, yeah. we just stay in that little circle and that cycle, repeating the narrative that we already know. That's not growth. That's just entrenchment. Yeah. <laughs> and God true. calls us to growth. And so we must keep going out and pressing onward and upward to more of what God has for us spiritually, but also within our career, because he's given us giftings and callings that we are then stewards of to use for the benefit, not of us, but of others. And if we're going to yeah. do that, that means we have to keep going. We can't settle. Yeah. I think you hit on something there. Like think about the idea of comfort. I think we're all very prone to just being comfortable. And uh, once we get comfortable, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to keep going to do anything else. I think one of the guests I had on previously, uh, his name was Rashawn Copeland, and he wrote a book that just came out called Start Where You Are. Uh, but in that book, he talked about, uh, you know, it, it kind of talks about his life. But one of the things he says is, uh, if God pulled me out of it, I don't want to go back to something like, I don't want to go back to it, or I'm not going back to it. If God pulled me out of it, I'm not going back to it. And that's not to say that we can't, you know, obviously do some certain things, but the idea was um, if God has taken me out of a situation, I don't want to go back to that spot, whenever he's moving me over here. And I think that's kind of where I've found myself in life is that, you know, if, if God has put me in a position, uh, what, I, what I get from that more so is to, to, is to try to thrive where God has put me. And um, not that I can't enjoy what I've had before, or if another opportunity comes up, like, for instance, okay, I'm not coaching my old high school team. I've got an opportunity to coach at my school here. That doesn't mean I'm never going to coach you and just because I'm not coaching there, but basically not uh, living in that phase of life, not relive, not reliving that time trying to trying to focus where I'm at now. And uh, it sounds like that's kind of a, a little bit of, I guess, the mindset I'm getting from from what you're talking about. I mean, is that something that you've told yourself or walked through just trying to be present and focus on where you're at? Totally. Yeah, it's a great word. I mean, the, one of my favorite adages is, uh, you know, the common phrase of the grass is always greener on the, the other side of the fence. And the follow up to that is the grass is greener on the side that you're watering. So why are you watering the other side? You know, it's good. Um, I like that. Yeah. And, and so our, my goal is like, I'm going to water where I'm at. I'm going to yeah. water my side of the fence. I'm going to say, gosh, what a sweet gift to be where I am right now. Like, how can I be grateful for the myriad of things that this present moment bring? Uh, and, and I think, um, what you hit on earlier of this comparison, right? That we, we all face more probably than ever before uh, because of technology, because of social media, because of uh, everything being interconnected. We have the ability to compare ourselves with people that we never would have before in our lives. Um, and that's yeah. such a, a toxic thing if we allow ourselves uh, to become addicted to that, which yeah. is very easy to do because companies are great at addicting us to those things. Yeah. I just watched so, the social yeah. dilemma. Have you watched that, that documentary yes. talking? I mean, exactly why we're so addicted to it is created to make us yeah. addicted. Then we go crazy. 
Yes. And so I think that, again, speaks to not settling in the sense that it takes discipline to a use those mediums without being addicted to which can be done and it can be redeemed for good right we are you and i are both trying to do that we're trying to use platforms to redeem it for good not be used by them for addiction and um and also leading to depression and other things that that come from a a host of comparison um and so uh, it always takes intention, a reason why behind what we're doing. So we have to check in and say, what, why am I doing this? Why do I want to be involved with this? Why do I want to um, go check this right now? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and then the discipline is something that's not going to happen by chance. You know, uh, again, swimming upstream doesn't happen by chance. We have to have that intention piece in there. Um, and then we have to work for it. And, and I think, uh, one of my favorite, uh, I wrote a blog post, one of my favorite titles I ever had was uh, life is not a hot shower. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, hot showers are very comfortable and warm and we love them and they're just soothing and, and life's not that. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and, you know, social media, I think can help, it can portray the image that life's that a lot of times, but we have to remember that life is much more like a cold shower than it's a hot shower. And if we're going to be prepared to best walk through life, then maybe we should start taking some cold showers. Uh, and honestly, I think cold showers are the best way to create discipline daily, practically, applicably. So if you want to start becoming a more disciplined person, take cold showers. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you see, that's a great metaphor. Cause you get in a hot shower, you're comfortable just wanting to sit there and stay there for much longer than you need to. You're going to waste time. So yeah, there's a lot that you could extrapolate out of just that little example. I love it. Uh, so you got your, your second, this is your second book that's coming out. It's called Catalyst for Hope, Unlocking Energy, Optimism, and Your Full Potential. Uh, it's already available on your website for free, but talk to me about uh, this book and uh, maybe what are, what are some ideas that are in this that, that aren't in your online courses or also maybe there's some overlap that uh, you know people, if they're looking for a certain type of content, they could kind of indulge in, in all of your stuff that you've got coming out. Yeah, you know, it's it's really something that if we look at our time, our current cultural moment, I think it's easy to say that it's more hopeless than it's ever been, right? People are more hopeless than they've ever been. And and the whole point and the whole goal of this book is to produce more hope-filled people um, because hope is always readily available if only we'd look for it. Uh, and, and the book is sharing basically four perspectives, four reframing of our perspectives that I believe can unlock a lot of hope each and every day for us where we're at right now. Um, and, and by doing that, we start generating more hope in other people because hope filled people produce more hopeful people. Um, and, and I think, man, that would be such a gift to, to what we're experiencing of this division and this, um, uh, this place where we feel helpless and hopeless. And so some of those perspectives are just some of the ideas we even talked about today are the fact that like uh, you're not finished yet, that you're still in process. That's such an encouraging thing, right? Oh, yeah. If like we were done, we were at the end right now. I'm like, gosh, there's so much more I felt like I had in me or wanted to do. And the fact that you're not done yet, that's a that's an amazing hope. Oh, yeah. Um, the fact that progress, it doesn't happen in giant leaps. It happens in baby steps, you know, <laughs> like the little things are actually the big things, not the other way around. Um, and so by understanding that progress happens in baby steps, that means that today I can make progress by just taking a baby step forward, taking the next step, whatever that is. Um, yeah. And the final two are just possibility um, that we we have to believe in the possibility to help us lean into our own potential. Um, and so by by 
producing more of an optimism within that of saying, hey, like there's way more possible than we often think. Um, and we can lean into that potential by just believing in it. Uh, it can be really helpful. And finally, the purpose piece where, you know, hope comes from having a purpose that's greater than just ourselves. It's beyond us. Yeah. And when we live daily attached and aligned to that, it's amazing to see what can come in a few weeks, months, or even years time. So this has already been available on your website. What's uh, what's the feedback been from it? I mean, I'm sure there's been people that, that have been impacted. I mean, what have you heard from people that have read and what's been encouraging about that so far? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't heard a ton. I've heard a little bit. And what I've heard is just that it's bringing, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that like the way I write, I think it, it is, uh, it's bright, meaning like it is a, it's an optimistic kind of vent, but it also is, um, it's broad. So it's, it's kind of opening perspectives up. Um, and I usually use a lot of quotes and illustrations that help kind of share, shed light from different angles. So I think people appreciate, those pieces it's it's not just um a pump up speech but it's also a a thought-provoking read in that sense awesome so i have got to talk to you about golf this is uh one thing i was looking forward to so i like we talked about earlier i just got into to golf um been playing a little bit i'm a lefty when i golf so we're going to have a a tiny little virtual golf lesson here (laughs) how in the world do i fix my slice Mm. on my tee shot the million dollar question. So <laughs> here, I got I got some help for you here. Um, so what's cool about golf is how much it relates to life. Yeah. Now, a lot of things in golf are counterintuitive, meaning we think we need to we 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 often say, okay, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to do this, so I don't do this. Well, what we know is that's a negative affirmation, and that ends up producing what we don't want, and that's true right. in life too. You know, so it's a very equal application. So so for a slice. The, the, the two keys of it, pieces of advice I would give any golfer, including you, is that when you break down a swing and a shot, there's two things that are affecting it. It's your club head, so how open or closed your club head is, and your swing path, whether it's in to out or out to in. Now, whether your face is open or closed determines on where the ball starts out at, right? So yeah. if, you're, if you keep pulling everything or keep pushing everything, well, the face is probably open and the face is probably closed. Now, if you keep hitting a slice or you keep hitting a draw, it's related to your swing path. Now, for a slice, the path is going to be out to in. So when we when we hit slices, right? And yeah. if we don't want to hit a slice, we say, I just need a swing further for you, further right. I yeah. need a, I need a swing further right, you know, if you're a lefty, yeah. but that actually makes it slice more. Yeah. So to fix a <laughs> slice, you have to convince yourself and usually it happens on the range so your body can start believing it that if i swing into out that's going to change the path of the ball um, and that's very counterintuitive it's hard to get the body to believe in that and the mind to believe in that and that takes some reps on the range so those are some some food for thought and that simple diagnostic tool can really be helpful just in making small improvements along the way yeah it's definitely gotten better since i started playing i've been playing almost two, sometimes three times a week. I have a public course right by my house. And so I can just go out there by myself. And I love doing that. Just hitting, uh, you know, I can go out and play nine holes. And if I'm by myself and it's not busy, I could hit multiple balls on a hole and just kind of get to practice. Cause I love going to the range, but I also like seeing how it plays on a real course with kind of, you know, not, not necessarily pressure, but like, you know, 
playing on a hole and seeing how that, how that goes and that kind of thing. So I, uh, I've definitely enjoyed it cause it's, uh, it's, it is relaxing, even though sometimes it's frustrating. It is relaxing. I like it because every other sport that I've played physically, I'm matching up with somebody else and I'm mm-hmm. not always, I'm not always, uh, as strong or physically gifted as somebody when you play golf, it's you versus the course. And, and I, I, I like that cause I don't feel as, uh, I don't want to say nervous, but I, I don't have to worry about somebody else kind of taking over because their strength is, is bigger than mine. I can just, if I mess up, it's cause I didn't hit the ball. Right. And so that's, I, mm. I kind of like that aspect of it. Um, but yeah. what are, uh, what have been some of your favorite courses that you've gotten to play? Obviously I'm sure you got to play some, some ones that the average person doesn't have access to or won't ever get to, but you know, whenever you think about your golf career and places you play, what are some of your favorite spots? Man, yeah, that's yeah. I've I've been blessed to play a lot of different uh, golf courses. I, the course I grew up on is probably it probably tops my list just because it is where I grew up and it's just like a piece of paradise. It's it's called Prairie Dunes Country Club and it's in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, in Hutchinson, Kansas. Yeah, and it's one of the top you know twenty or thirty in the U.S. and top forty or so in the world, and you would never you know expect it. Um, so that was just such an amazing gift to be able to grow up there. I, I've gotten to play out at Riviera out of L.A. That was a really in L.A. Country Club. Those two were probably my two favorites out there. Um, I remember I got to play in the Australian Open and, and playing the Australian Golf Club in Sydney was just a really that whole experience was one of the most memorable. Um, and uh, Southern Hills was also really good in, in Oklahoma. Uh, and then last I'll say is at the Bandon Dunes Resort. Um, my dad took me there for a graduation gift. And it is, if you're a golfer, that's, it's gotta be a bucket list item. I mean, really all they have to do there is golf. So if you have like a wife and kids or something, don't bring them because they're not going to have fun. It's <laughs> yeah. not gonna be worth the money for them unless they enjoy golf. Um, so it, it's really a golf, purely a golf trip, but I mean, they have now they just added a new one called the goat or the sheep ranch and i think they have five or six courses now and all of them are just incredible yeah where i where i'm from which was evansville indiana it's uh, southwestern indiana we have a I mean, it's a pretty it's close to a pga tour level course it's called victoria national and it's always one of the top courses in the country and they host uh, a tournament on the corn ferry tour in the last couple of years it's actually been the host of the championship round for the corn fairy tour wow. and so um, that's been really cool to go out there and watch uh basically like the triple a of professional golf and some of a lot of those guys are now on the tour and my dad he's a pretty big golfer he's gotten to play there a few times but for several years he was a walking scorer for that and he got to walk nice. with several golfers that went on to play in the pga tour so now he's like oh i got to walk with that guy i met them at the, at the tournament and so that's been really cool for that that area to have that and so just to see that whenever it's on golf channel and uh you know, seeing little old, it's, it's actually in Newburgh, Indiana. It's a, it's a suburb of Evansville, but to see that like on TV, it's pretty cool. And it's, it's a, it's a top of the notch, the top of the line course right there. Um, which is it's That's cool awesome. for our area to have that. Yeah. I've never gotten to yeah. play on it. I did. I did work there part-time just like when I was working for a newspaper, I had some days off and I would work there for a little bit of part-time just cause I enjoyed being out there and I never got a chance to play on it, but I loved going out there and just seeing the course and being around it. Cause there's just something about being on a really nice golf course. That's just like, even if you're not a big golfer, you're not good at golf. It's cool just to be out there. It is. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really, uh, it's an experience that you wouldn't really expect because the environment is really tense in a lot of ways because of the pressure, because of um, the, the noise is quieter, but you do have, you know, 
cheers and all that going on too. But it's a it's a more intense environment than people expect when you've never been in that place. Um, but it's also more inspiring and when you get to see these shots up close and in person and it's it's pretty impressive what can be done and just to give people a taste too i mean the the average time it takes guys to get to the pga tour is seven to ten years so yeah most of the guys you see on the pga tour the names you see with the exception of the one percent of the guys on the pga tour which are the jordan spieth the rory mcelroy's you know the colin marikawa's that just have that early opportunity and capitalize and take advantage of it. Everyone else is usually on a seven to 10 year journey to get there. Uh, so they're just grinding it out on mini tours or the corn Ferry tour to try and get their chance. And, and it's just a, it's a long journey for most people. Yeah. There was a guy that uh, he went to the, the same high school that I went to. He graduated well, well before I was there, but his name is Jeff Overton and he played in the PGA tour. He was on the Ryder cup team uh, yeah. one year and yeah, he, uh, he played at Indiana university and I don't know when he got his PGA card, but yeah, he had to go through that process. And then I don't really know if he's playing anymore. He, I haven't heard from him in a while. I think he's kind of off the tour now, but that was cool to see a guy from our area uh, make it. And then there's another yeah. guy, his name is Dylan Meyer, who's pretty good. I think he's on one of the lower level tours too. So Southern Indiana for the, like actually my high school, uh, the girls team just won the state championship for like the fifth time in the last six years. So, Little old Southern Indiana, where I'm from, is a pretty good hotbed of, of golf, which is cool. So I'm surprised I never really got into it as much growing up because uh, it is such a good golf community. But uh, I'm happy to be I'm happy to be playing now, and it's one of those sports that you can always play as you get older, which is what I love about tennis and golf because you can be uh, you know in your older years and, and still get out there and play, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's so true, and I love. Um, what you brought up earlier about golf too, of how it's such a uh, game against yourself in the course. And I think, I think that is the most unique thing about golf as you brought up, because tennis, you still are going head to head against someone, but right. golf, you really are. Uh, it's you against your mind, you against the course, you against the conditions. Um, and you, it's a self-discovery process. You learn something yeah. about yourself every single time you're mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, that's that honestly, that's why I've always loved tennis because it's a mental game, but golf is even more of a mental game because you're, you're only, only thing you have to focus on are the elements, the course, hitting the ball, and then your own mental state. Cause like tennis, you can have all that going on, but then if the other person is just on fire and they're playing really well, then it's almost like an even bigger hill to have to climb. And so I've loved that's any sport, there's mental aspect to it, but specifically golf and tennis, I think that's why I've always enjoyed it because. Um, I, I love whenever I hit a good shot, like I, if I have a good idea and I have a good, like, I'm like, Oh, I want to hit this club here. Uh, and I, and I hit it just like I want it to. And the result is good. It's like, it feels like a mental win, which is almost more rewarding than just being physically more gifted than somebody. I feel like totally, totally. Yeah. You're 100% right. Have you ever read uh, the book, uh, the inner game of tennis by Timothy I- Galway? I haven't. I haven't read that one yet. You'll have to you'll have to check it out at some point. Being a tennis player, you'll really yeah. appreciate it. But it, it applies to any anyone that competes in sports because it really breaks down the the mental component that's involved in any performance or any mm-hmm. athletic performance. And it's he does a beautiful job. I found it to be one of the most helpful books um, for working on our mental performance. Uh, so definitely check that out at some point. Yeah, for sure. So you were hitting on this earlier. You said something about how, you know, we live these crazy busy lives and, and you, you know, you were talking about your book and how we don't really have time for, you know, kind of a, a content dump and all that kind of stuff leads into my, my final question. I always love to ask people. So my show is called in no hurry. And the idea behind naming it, that was that 
uh, you know, we do live busy lives and we often have a hard time slowing down. And so, um, the whole idea was kind of promoting that idea to, to do, to peel back and, and slow down and that kind of thing. So, uh, whenever your life does get busy and, and it's crazy and, and you need to slow down, what are, what are some of your go-to things? I assume getting back out on the golf course is one of them, but what are some things that you do to kind of slow down and just sort of recalibrate? Mm. I, yeah, I love the title of your podcast. It's such a message that's needed and, um, we, we need as much as we can r- reminders about, uh, that, important practice you know one of my i think my most favorite rhythm in the sense is the idea of sabbath um Mm -hmm. i actually wrote a blog post about this called i wrote this on my sabbath (laughs) (laughs) and um and then in the first sentence i say actually i didn't write this on my sabbath i actually lied and i'm guessing you're more upset that i lied about that than the fact that i wrote on my sabbath and that's the point Hmm. um and the point is you know in the old testament the sabbath was punishable by death not yeah. practicing the Sabbath was punishable by death. It was just the same as like committing adultery. Yet when we hear that, we're shocked. We're like, what? You know, but it, yeah. God takes this seriously because he designed us in a way that benefits most from it. Um, and, you know, the way that uh, Americans, whether you're of faith or not, practice a weekend would not be considered Sabbath most times. It's more just like vegging out or um partying if you're not you know it it just there's a wide range of things and then for christians a lot of times uh we view going to church as a sabbath and that's not the point either you know it's not a lot of times that's actually more work than not when we're involved in ministry or whatever it may be right and the point is having a day that's set aside where it's intentional rest you're you're you know if it's one out of seven days you should actually have way more intention into that single day than the other six um, and so having a really intentional Sabbath is probably the best way to recharge and reset. Um, and, and for me, that really, I, I felt like the rules that I needed to make for myself from God were nothing uh, work or career related, no social media and no email. And those were the three that I really felt called to for me. But I really think it should be between you and God or, or just be really prayerful and meditative over what it is that needs to be for you for it to be a day of rest and day yeah. set aside where we can really remember that I don't need to trust in myself and need to trust in God. I don't need to um, think that I'm required for all that I'm doing. I'm just a piece of the puzzle. And um, I think that's been a huge game changer for me. I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram achiever and I'm just always going and that's kind of how I'm wired. And so this is the most important practice for me. And without it, I easily get burned out and I easily get bogged down and I easily start losing my priorities and a a clear picture of who I am and who I'm called to be. Um, So I think that's by far my number one practice. I love that. I I wish I was better at uh, establishing a a Sabbath and keeping it. I just, I, my Sunday, honestly, uh, ironically, usually consists of editing my podcast for, for the next day when I publish it, uh, writing my newsletter that I send out on Monday. Uh, and it's funny because oftentimes I'll talk about resting and I'm using my Sabbath, which your Sabbath can be, it doesn't have to be Sunday. It can be any day as long as you set one apart. But uh, for me, it really should be Sunday because I have to teach Monday through Friday. And then mm. uh, Saturday, you know, typically I, I've had, I've done well some days about really making it a Sabbath, but it's hard for me to get unplugged from my phone. It's hard for me to get unplugged from uh, doing things because I have so many things that are on my plate and it's hard for me to unplug. And I think that that is, we talked about discipline. I think that is a discipline that uh, so many of us struggle with. And even me, I've been doing this podcast, preaching this message for a year and I'm nowhere near perfect at it. My wife does a really good job of, of keeping a Sabbath and she's very, very intentional about it. And so I admire her 
you know, I admire anybody who can do what you're talking about that, you know, completely unplug, no work, no emails, nothing at all. And just kind of use that data recharge and rest. Cause it's, you know, we could even go down a whole rabbit trail of what that has on our mental health state, how much mm. it helps our mental health to, to rest and unplug. And I think a lot of the mental, this is no scientific, uh, you know, reasoning here. I just, I feel like I, I would have to think that a lot of the mental health issues that plague our country probably have to do somewhat with the fact that we don't know how to unplug or slow down. And that's a, that's definitely something that I, you know, whenever we, we look into closing out this year, beginning a new year, that's something that I think is, has already been a focus of mine that I want to get better at. And uh, I, I'm encouraged by people like you that, that can do it. That's, that's, that's their, that's their Sabbath plan. So. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard for everyone just to just encourage you. Like, I don't think it's easy for anyone to do um, in, intentionally and well, and, you know, I agree with you, too, to echo you that Sundays, it doesn't mean it needs to be a Sunday. You know, when I, I used to do back in L.A., I used to do espresso bar at my church and it was a side business I ran. So I set it up every day at church and I mean, it was like an eight hour workday. So it definitely wasn't my Sabbath. So I honestly had to start just looking at my week schedule. And since it was I was an entrepreneur, I could kind of dictate. And I look at it and see which day was like the most free and I just sacrifice and say, okay, boom, put Sabbath in the header of the calendar and be like, all right, I'm not doing anything. I'm not booking anything that day, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, I'd use it for time with friends, use it for exercise or fun activities or reading or praying or just spending time, um, you know, a whole host of things it could be. But uh, yeah, I think it, I think like you said, it is a key part of wellness, uh, both emotional, mental, and physical um, and, you know, like any good athlete, right, the most important part of any uh, training and exercise is recovery. If you're not yeah. recovering, your body's going to break down and same true. is true in our lives. So um, it's hard for all of us. And it's, uh, it's good for all of us. Um, so holding each other accountable to it is, is, a, is a great thing. And, and being honest about where we're at's first step. So I, I love what you just shared. So if people want to connect with you, uh, where can they find you? I, obviously, you're on social media. You've got a website. But what are the best ways for people to connect with you? FameMarcus.com is the headquarters kind of for all that I do. So blogs, courses, uh, books, stuff like that. Um, and you can connect with me on there or at FameMarcus on socials. But yeah, I would love to hear from people if they were encouraged by something. If they weren't, if they want to discuss something, I'm open. <laughs> I'm here. I'm an open book. So it's just fun to to share some ideas and it's been fun having this conversation with you, Cole. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to, to check out these courses and excited to hear how, how people respond to them and how it impacts them. And it's great to talk to you and I'm definitely excited. I've got a little bit of uh, advice on how to fix my slice. So I'll get to the, the next time I get out on the course or the range, I'll, I'll definitely be putting that to practice. <laughs> I think I that's going to be, that's going to be one of those, uh, those things that I'm going to be constantly working on. Cause I, I played baseball growing up. And so I think naturally I'm used to that swing and even mm -hmm. like even hitting a backhand in tennis. Cause I actually am right-handed dominantly. I just grew up for some reason I hit a baseball bat left-handed and then uh, my backhand in tennis felt naturally, I felt natural for me. So I actually like, I would, I throw and I do everything else right-handed for some reason I play golf and bad when I hit baseballs, I, that left-handed. So I think that those swings, they all just kind of feel like I'm, I'm I want to tend to hit like a baseball bat. And so I got to, it's different hitting a golf club. So I got to, yep. That takes some time. It takes some time. Be patient. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks man. Thanks for joining me. And this was awesome. Thanks. Cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Thane. Make sure you check out his new book, Catalyst for Hope, Unlocking Energy, Optimism, and Your Full Potential, as well as his two online courses, 
take ownership, growing self-awareness, and never settle developing discipline. Those are available on his website, thanemarcus.com. Make sure that you check that out and give him a follow on social media as well. All of the links for that are in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. And as always, I would love for you guys to sign up for my weekly email lists, especially right now. I have some really exciting things planned for the rest of the year, and I would love for you to be a part of that. So head over to coleclayborn.com, click on the newsletter tab, and sign up, or just click the link in the show notes that'll take you directly to it. We're going to be talking a lot about gratefulness and gratitude this month with Thanksgiving coming up. And I just want to say I'm thankful, grateful for everybody listening. And if you've got somebody in your life, whether that's a friend, family member, somebody you work with that you think might be interested in this show, make sure you let them know that word of mouth marketing is super valuable and it means a lot coming from somebody else who listens to the show. Usually people are more prone to listen to a show that way. And I would greatly appreciate it if you share this with people who uh, you think would be interested in it. But as always, I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you guys find some time to relax and not be in a hurry. And we will see you back next week.